reconcile any two opposing parties, who would it be? North Korea and the world? Muslims and Jews? Republicans and Democrats? Your parents? You and your spouse or children? Jesus came to do the hardest reconciliation of all, us to God. Staff member Jeff Norris wraps up the series The Pattern of the Gospel with this message entitled Gospel Mission, which covers 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Thank you for joining us today. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you for uh, this third and final installment of the series that we've been in called The Pattern of the Gospel. And uh, I have loved being with you the, the previous two weeks. Um, so thankful where the Lord took us in our time together, but um, maybe perhaps most excited about where he's going to take us this morning. Um, the text that we're looking at is one of the richest texts that I have experienced in my own life as I've walked with the Lord, and uh, it has been such an instrumental part in, in shaping me into living my life the way that I seek to live my life. And so excited to be in the Word again with you this morning. Let me show you a picture as we get started this morning. This is a picture from uh, many years ago, uh, maybe not too long ago, but as you can tell, it's definitely not uh, HD there. But this is me and some of my buddies. Um, We are, that's me squatting down there, and I'm pulling back one of these massive slingshots, one of these that are so big that you have to have a guy hold each end. And this is at a lake house, and what you can't see in the picture is that um, there, on the other side of the slough there, there's an old abandoned shack, like boathouse type thing. And we're aiming at that, and it's probably, I I don't know, maybe 100, maybe 200 yards away. But uh, what I remember about this, I remember this so well, we had so much fun, but one of the things that I remember, we're shooting water balloons, just so you know, we're not shooting rocks or explosives or anything like that. Um, But we're shooting water balloons, and one of the things I remember so much is I can remember letting that thing go. And just being amazed at how, how uh, powerful that thing was. The, the projection of that uh, water balloon coming out of that slingshot was just something to, to behold. It was fun. I think about slingshots, and I think, that, I think it's a fitting metaphor for where we're going this morning. And here's what I mean. None of us need the explanation of how a slingshot works. But if you think about it, what a slingshot does is you pull back these rubber bands... And you pull them back as far as you can possibly pull them. And you put your object in there. And what you're doing is you're harvesting a force. You're holding something there and harvesting it. And then when it's released, it is propelled powerfully in the direction that you're aiming. In the direction that you want and and, and intend for it to go. And I think about that and I think, you know, I I think that's true of every single person in this world at the inner level. Here's what I mean. I think every single one of us, whether they be Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't matter. I think every single one of us have a harvested force within us that propels us in a certain direction. Some harvested force within us that propels us in a certain direction. Some of you are going, man, he's getting all new agey on me, but stay with me. I'll explain. Think about it. There's all kinds of things that drive us. And propel us to live the way that we live. Maybe it's this, when we've, I've mentioned this in previous weeks, but maybe it's this desire that, it, that so saturates our culture, particularly here in Johns Creek and Atlanta and just America in general, but just this drive for success, to be known, to be significant, to have a reputation that we work so hard to build. And this, this harvested force of success and reputation can be the very thing that launches us to live our lives 
in a certain way. Everything that we do is because of that harvested force, that harvested desire. Maybe it's a wound from your past. Something's happened to you, something difficult and hard that you've had to walk through. And, uh, and even though that's hard and difficult, it's, it's kind of morphed into something that is now that harvested force that, that motivates everything that you do, how you think and how you live. And it's kind of taken over. Maybe it's a broken relationship in your past, somebody who hurt you deeply. And you want to do everything that you can to uh, overcome and never have that happen again. Overcome that broken relationship and never be hurt again or hurt again like that. And so that's the harvested force that propels you in the way that you live. Maybe it's the desire to be the best mom that you could possibly be. So much so, that's a great desire by the way. But so much so that it becomes this harvested force within you that propels you to post everything you can on Instagram and social media that presents you in a light as the best mom. And you know that's not reality. But it's that harvested force that makes you live the way that you do. I think for the Christian, this is what we need to hear. For the Christian, we should be propelled in a missional direction by the harvested force of Christ's love. Christ and his love should be taking root in us so deeply through the gospel that as it's doing its work, as the Lord's work and and love is doing its work in us, that we are naturally, in our desires, in the way that we live, propelled in aligning ourselves toward his mission. That his compelling love would actually propel us into the ministry of his love, into the mission of his love. So that's where we're headed this morning. But as I've done each week, I want to make sure that something's clear. We talk about the gospel. We use the term often. It's become cliche within our within our vernacular, within the the Christian subculture. And there's churches all over the place where we, uh, it's become commonplace for us to say gospel, 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 the gospel, the gospel. And And I fear this, I fear that there could be some who come to our churches I mean the church at large and certainly perimeter as well where we throw around the term the gospel but we don't always do a good job of explaining what we mean by it so that uh, I'm afraid that some people leave our churches saying, you know, I, I think the, that the gospel is important. I hear it often but I, I don't hear, I don't really know what it means. So if you want a, a more robust definition, ex- explanation of the gospel then go back and listen to the two, uh, two weeks ago to the first uh, sermon in this series where I break it down in more detail but in a nutshell here's what the gospel is I don't want to assume that anyone in here this morning that everyone in here this morning understands this so let me bear with me for a moment it simply means this it means that all of us every single person and all of humanity for all of time we are all woeful sinners who have offended with our sin a holy God and we deserve the just punishment of his of his wrath against our sin Not only that, if that weren't bad enough, we can't do anything to change it. There's no amount of goodness or uh, rightness or uh, uh, moral behavior that could ever change God's opinion, that we could ever prop something up in front of him and he'd say, I'm so pleased with how good you are that I will no longer worry about this sin problem that disconnects me from you, that alienates me from you, and that is the barrier between you and me. And we still have a sin problem no matter how good we may look outwardly. But the good news of the gospel is this, that God being rich in mercy and with his great love with which he has loved us, even while we were dead, 
I mean, just think about that. Even while we were dead, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God graciously and lovingly sends his own son to do primarily three things. First, he comes and he lives the perfect standard for us that we can't live. So he's perfect in our place. Secondly, he takes the wrath of God in our place, the punishment that we deserve. He takes it. He's the only person who's ever walked the face of the earth that didn't deserve the wrath of God, yet he takes it willingly and joyfully. And then lastly, he defeats death in our place. He rose from the dead so that through faith in him, we trust in him as our substitute. We don't prop anything up before God except Jesus. It's his work on my behalf. It's his finished work. And through faith in him, God looks at us and he doesn't see Jeff the sinner who can't get it right, who has to be alienated from me for all of eternity. He looks at us and he sees the righteousness of God. He sees the righteousness of his son and he says, you're righteous, you're accepted, you're holy. And then he adopts us as his kids and bestows upon us all the blessings of adoption of the king. Now, the reason I go through that every single week, some of you go, man, do we have to do that every week? And I would say, yep, we do. Because we forget it so easily. We don't meditate on it enough. Listen, friends, if we meditated on the gospel every single day, the, the work that it would begin to do within us, the humility that it would breed within us, the awe that it would breed within us, the, the wonder, the worship, the joy, the excitement of saying, God, you are amazing when we begin to consider his unthinkable grace, his unimaginable love, his immeasurable worth that he would do such a thing for us. And when this gospel begins to sink deeper and deeper into us and we place our faith in Jesus and we trust him daily, we're different. We're changed. We're not the same. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to be in verse, uh, verses 11 through 21 this morning. If you have your Bibles, great. If not, they'll be on the screen. The verses will be on the screen. And you also have them printed out for you on your points to remember. I'll start in verse 11. It says this. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Let me briefly say, let me connect the dots for you. We didn't get to read through verse 10 last week. We had to stop at verse 5. So I didn't cover 6 through 10 in chapter 5, but in verse 10, Paul is, is introducing this reality that one day we will stand before Jesus in a judgment. Now this is not the great white throne judgment. This is not the judgment that separates believer from non-believer, those in Christ and those not in Christ. It's not the judgment where those that are going to be in heaven forever with God because of their faith in Jesus versus those who will be separated from him for all of eternity in hell. That's not the judgment that he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.10. What he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5.10 is a, is a judgment that is a second judgment for the believer, for the follower of Jesus. And this is when we'll stand before Jesus and give an account for our lives, everything that we've done with what he's given us. It's not a condemning judgment. It's not a judgment where Jesus will condemn us, but it is a judgment that will happen. And this is where he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we don't fully understand what this is going to look like because in this time he's going to give us rewards but then we're just going to turn around and throw the rewards at his feet. And so, because it's, it's not about us. It's not about being glorified in the presence of Jesus in a sense. It's, it's about Jesus and making much of him. 
And so we don't really know exactly what this is going to look like, but Paul is saying, but we do know that we will give an account for the way that we live our lives as followers of Jesus. What are we doing to expand his kingdom? It's not a performance-driven thing where we win our salvation through this. It's just simply Jesus giving, us giving an account to Jesus with what he's gifted us with, the resources that we have. And so he's saying in verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. That's a fearful thing, a reverent fear. Not a, I'm a scared to death fear, but a, but a wow, I'm going to stand before Jesus one day fear. And because of this fear, this is what Paul says. He says, we try to persuade others. We try to persuade others in two ways. One, for those that don't know Jesus, man, we want to persuade them to know Jesus so they can be with him for all of eternity. But then secondly, we, we persuade believers, those who are in Christ. Hey, let's live to the glory of God in everything that we do. Let's engage in his mission in everything that we do because we are going to give an account one day. Is your life mattering in a way that is eternal? That's what we talked about last week. So Paul says we persuade others. Then he says this, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to con- commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. That might be confusing to you, but this is what Paul's doing. There's a group of people who have infiltrated the Corinthian church, and they're convincing some of the Corinthian believers that Paul is crazy. That Paul and his guys that are going around, that they're not true apostles, that they can't be trusted and they're nuts. And Paul is just simply saying, look, I've already explained myself to you earlier in this letter and the previous letter. And you can trust me. My work proves for itself. But then also, look, if I'm crazy, fine. Let them call me crazy. If I'm crazy, I'm crazy for God. But for you, I'm sober-minded. I want you to understand what it means to follow Jesus. So he goes into that in verse 14. And this is where we'll be for our first point. Listen to verse 14 through uh, 17. It says this, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. I forgot to tell you in my opening that today what we're focusing on is we're talking about, uh, we're talking about the mission that the gospel propels. But before the, the gospel propels us, first it compels us. That's your first point, the love of Christ compels us. Look at this language here in verse 14. It says, for Christ's love compels us now that's the NIV that's what I'm using I'm using the NIV because for me personally I like that word compels but this is a hard word to translate from the Greek language from this is a Greek verb that is a little bit difficult to get at the at the pure meaning what it's talking about in fact here's some of the different translations for it so the NIV and the New King James Version translate it compels the ESV and the New American Standard Bible use controls The King James Version says constraineth us or constrains us, that it constrains us. Another one says that the love of Christ urges us on. Yet another says that it overwhelms us. And then there was one last one that I found, that a translation that says that it lays 
hold of us. So clearly there's a lot of different ways that we can translate, that scholars have translated this one Greek verb. Listen to how Simon Kistemacher, he says it this way uh, in his commentary. He says the significance of this Greek verb is that Paul and all believers are completely dominated by the love of Christ so that they live for him. So you use this language that we're completely dominated by the love of Christ. Now let me be, let me be careful about something. This, these words control and dominate and constrain. These are words that don't always carry for us a, a real positive connotation. They can, maybe based on some past experiences for us, we can hear these words and none of us go around saying, hey, I want to be controlled by something in our flesh. We don't, we, those are not words that we typically see as positive. Yeah, sign me up for that. Let me be dominated by something and controlled by something. That's not how we think. But listen, when it comes to Jesus and his all-encompassing and all-amazing love, his life-changing love, his good love that we were created for, then there's nothing better for us than to be dominated and controlled and compelled and urged and constrained and laid hold of by the love of Jesus. It's deep down what we all long for. It's what we need. It's what we want. Whether we know how to express it or not, this is what we want. And when we begin to be controlled by the love of Christ compelled by him we go yes this is good this is good let me give you three ways that we see in the text here of how we're compelled and these will be brief because I want to spend the rest of our time on on the next part of our passage but just very briefly we are compelled this is from verse 15 we are compelled to live with a new selflessness a new selflessness. Verse 15 says, And he died for all that, all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is going back to two weeks ago that when I talked about how when we see the beauty of Jesus, when we're in awe and overwhelmed by the immeasurable worth of Jesus, then the only natural response is to die to ourselves because our eyes, the eyes of our hearts have been engaged with and be, begin to be consumed with the power and the might and the glory of Jesus. And so we don't live for ourselves anymore. No longer are, is ourself on the, on the throne. We're no longer king, but Jesus is king. And so we live with a selfless way of life. The gospel changes us. Secondly, verse 16 says, so from now on regard no one from a worldly point of view. And so we see here that we're compelled to live with a new worldview. We see life now. We see people now through a new lens, through a gospel lens. We don't view people any longer according to the way that we used to view them. We don't see them according to race or ethnicity or this category or this category. It doesn't matter because now what we understand as followers of Jesus is that there are only two categories. Those who are in Christ and those who are not. That's it. That's how we view every single person, regardless of where they are politically, regardless of where they are in religion. We see them as either they know Jesus or they don't. Either they are uh, going for, headed for eternal damnation or eternal life. And friends, let me tell you, if we would view people this way all the time, it would do wonders, wonders for our missional efforts. We would move towards others with such compassion. And we wouldn't left, lift people up as straw hats, so to speak, or straw men, so to speak, just so that we can tear them down and feel better about ourselves because we place them in a certain category. We only see people according to these two categories. We have a new worldview. And then verse 17, 
The famous verse, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. We are compelled to live as a new creation. We're born again. This is what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We're born again. We were born once into sin, into death. And through faith in Jesus, we're born again into life. We're new. We're different. The gospel changes us. Now, let me give you the second point. I want to spend the rest of our time thinking about these verses, 18 through 20. Second thing I want us to chew on this morning is that not only does the love of Christ compel us, but his love also propels us. It moves us in a direction. Look at verse 18. It says, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the message of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So let me give you your last two blanks here. Like I say each week, if you like to fill in blanks, I'm your guy. Two things that we're propelled to be as a result of Christ's love. The first one is that we are propelled to be messengers of reconciliation. Straight out of the text, that we are to be messengers of reconciliation. The other thing is that we are propelled to be ambassadors for Christ. Messengers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. Let me, let me give you a little bit of thought around both of these. What this means is this. God has invited us to be participants in expanding and sharing his story of redemption and reconciliation. Like, think about that for a second. God doesn't need us God doesn't need me, he doesn't need anybody to do his work, but yet in his sovereign, providential, benevolent plan, he has given us his mission. He's entrusted to us. 2 Corinthians 4 that we kind of talked about in the first week talks about how this this treasure of Jesus is is in us, these bodies of these jars of clay, these bodies of weakness and brokenness and feebleness. And yet God in all of his might and wonder and uh, just awesomeness has given to us the message of reconciliation. And this is a privilege. It is a privilege to get to be a part, a participant in expanding God's story on this earth. Many times, myself included, we don't look at it that way. We don't see it as a privilege. We see it as a chore. But I'm convinced And it's not always going to be perfect like this, but I will tell you this. I'm convinced that the more we saturate ourselves in the gospel, the more that we sit in the compelling love of Jesus, that we will begin to align more and more to his mission. Now, sometimes we we engage in God's missional work and we share our faith, not because we're just overwhelmed with the love of Christ, but because we feel like we need to do it as faithful followers of him. And sometimes it's going to feel that way. But the more we sit in the love of Christ... His love for us, know that. This is not talking about our love for him. It's talking about his love for us. His never-ending, never-stopping, never-giving-up love. Over us and in us. That moves us, propels us. And so first, we're messengers of reconciliation and how we speak, everything that we do, we get to tell people about Jesus. But then also, ambassadors. There's a lot of different ways we can talk about being an ambassador, but one of the ways I want you to think about this morning is that an ambassador represents in everything that he does or she does, both in his, his or her words or actions, everything about that king or country. So no, no matter, uh, not only what we say, but also what we do 
represents Jesus in everything. So that we're on mission everywhere that we go. We are representatives of Jesus in this alien world. We talked about it last week. Our home is not here. Our home is to come. We're made for heaven. We're made for eternity with God. But we're here. And he's given us a mission while we're here. And we get to be participants in this mission. Think about it this way. We're all born disconnected from God. And we get this great, great privilege and joy to be a part of God's story connecting them back to God that's what we get to do and we should count it as the joy that it is so God's called us to be messengers of reconciliation and to be ambassadors let me let me revisit what I said at the beginning I said that for all of us for all of us there's a harvested force within us that propels us in a certain direction and this can be a good thing or this can be something that does damage I'll tell you a story. Uh, it was the summer after my freshman year in college. And I had come home. I had, I'd spent a year really not walking with the Lord. I had run from God in so many ways. And I had come home because I needed to take some uh, classes at the local junior college. And um, that was not because I had struggled academically my freshman year. I, I really wanted to take those classes. And I hope you're picking up my sarcasm. <laughs> so I wanted to take these classes. So I'm taking classes at the local junior college, and, and while I was away in college my freshman year, I had, I had dated this girl from my hometown, small town Alabama. And when I went off to college, she was a year behind me, so her senior year in high school, my freshman year at college, we, we broke up. Well, I'm coming back for the summer, and I decide that well, we're, we're going to get back together, right? I have this great confidence and arrogance about me. And so I come back to my hometown, and I begin to say, okay, well, I'm going to date this girl again. And one of my buddies says, has no one told you? And I said, what? He said, oh, she's, she's dating James. And James was one of my good buddies. And no one had told me. Jealousy was birthed. I let this jealousy harvest in me. This harvested force of jealousy was just growing and growing and growing. Now, I mentioned I grew up in a small town in Alabama. Let me tell you how small it was. Our houses, the girl I dated in my house, were right next to each other. I had to pass her house to get to my house. So one day I'm driving by her house. Remind you, I was not walking with the Lord. I see his car in the driveway. Harvested force of jealousy takes over. I pull into the driveway. I walk in the house. I don't even knock on the door. My kids are here this morning. This is where they tune out. Um, I walk through the door and I tell my buddy I say stay there and for some reason he did he should have hit me (laughs) stay there you come with me so I get this girl and I take her out into her own driveway and for 10 minutes I stick my finger in her face and yell at her now I tell you this story on one hand to know that your pastors need Jesus as much or more than you do (laughs) and my kids need to hear that God has done a great redeeming work in my life since then But jealousy took over. There was this harvested force that led me to do things and say things and go to places that I normally wouldn't do, say, and go. And it led to debauchery. It led to sin. It led to damage that I did to this sweet girl. This is what we're talking about. When the love of Christ grabs a hold of us, when the gospel sets deep within us, when the Holy Spirit takes over, 
then we're propelled to do things that we normally wouldn't do and go things that we normally wouldn't go and say things that we normally wouldn't say, but in a way that glorifies God. This is what Ephesians 5.18 is getting to. This is the whole point of Ephesians 5.18 is don't be drunk with wine for it leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, I grew up in a small town. I, I mentioned that for the third time now. I guess I really want you to know that. So in this hometown, man, I heard that verse a lot, but I only heard the first part. Don't get drunk with wine. We love to do this as Southerners, man. We'll beat that drum till we're, till, you know, till the, the horse is really dead. Don't get drunk. Don't get drunk. And that's true. Drunkenness is a sin. But what was Paul really trying to get at there? There's a whole other part to the verse. Don't be drunk with wine for at least debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Here's what he's saying. When the love of Christ compels us and when the Holy Spirit takes over, what we used to do in drunkenness and go places we normally wouldn't go, do things we normally wouldn't do, say things we normally wouldn't say, now let the Spirit take control, let the love of Christ compel you and then propel you in such a way that you end up doing and saying and going places that you would have previously thought were crazy. That one led to sin. This one leads to the glory of God. If you had told me years ago when I was in college, there was a time where if you had told me Jeff, you're going to spend the next 13 years of your life after college in full-time ministry, walking into fraternity houses, introducing yourself to guys that you've never met in this really awkward kind of way, just so that you can befriend them so that they might know Jesus. I would have said, you're crazy. I'm not going to do that. And then the love of Christ got a hold of me. And when the love of Christ gets a hold of us, we do things that we would have previously said, man, that's, that's crazy. That's nuts. I don't think any person in first grade, when you're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up, says, I want to be uh, compelled by the love of Christ in such a way that I'm going to be a missionary in the sedan. No, I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a policeman. We, we want to do things, and these are all good things. There's mission in all of our jobs, but my point is this, man, when the love of Christ takes over, things happen. So here's what happens for the fireman or the policeman or the businessman or woman, or for the mom, or whatever phase of life we're in, we begin to see our lives differently, and we begin to engage in the mission in the context that God's given us. This is happening in our church so much. In some ways, I'm like, man, does Perimeter Church really need this message this morning? Because Perimeter, more than any church I've ever been around, gets this. But, but I'm convinced as well that there is so much more room and opportunity for growth for us as a church body to engage in the mission even more. And to influence people in the places where we are. I hope you'll be encouraged by a couple of stories. There's, there's, a, there's a story that I was made aware of recently of a young mom who, in her neighborhood, she was just doing life. I mean, she was taking her kids to the pool and just walking around the neighborhood. And as she would walk around and go to the pool and whatnot, she would meet other young moms and begin to build friendships with them. And as she was doing that, she just began to invite them to her house say, hey, would you, would you want to come over for dessert and coffee? And then it became a little bit more formal where she then says, look, I have this book called The Answer, and, and I'd love for us to think about this and talk through it. And she had built a relationship with them to where they trusted her. And so uh, she invites all these women over that she had befriended. And on the first night that they have their first official get-together, there were nine women, many of whom are not believers, who came to her house to have coffee and dessert and talk about this book and talk about the gospel. I think about another man in our church who over a decade ago had this desire from the Lord to say, let's start gathering men in my neighborhood around a fire pit and just talk and do life together. 
And so for the better part of a decade now, he's had uh, tons and tons of men come through his neighborhood and gather around a fire pit uh, in his neighborhood and talk about life and faith. And many of those men have come to faith. I think about a guy that I'm in a discipleship group with who just very naturally began to share his story of redemption on the golf course with his brother-in-law. Just saying, hey, you got to hear what's happened to me. His brother-in-law is now a faithful follower of Jesus and in, in the discipleship group with us. It, it doesn't take much. Sometimes I think we have this great big picture of that I've got to be the best gospel presenter ever to, in order to lead someone to the Lord. And you really don't. You don't have to be a pastor. You just have to be someone who is so compelled by the love of Jesus that you say, God, propel me into where you would have me be to influence who you would have me influence. Sometimes I've noticed that the, there's a great chasm between I know how to build relationships and I feel like I know how to, what to say once we get to the point of sharing the gospel, but man, how do I bring it up? How do I get from building a relationship with this person to talking about spiritual things? And so I'll just give you a quick little application this morning that I have found to be incredibly effective and helpful in my own personal ministry. And it's simply this. When I'm with someone that I've built a relationship with, and by the way, when I say build a relationship, you got, you got to eventually go there. Don't build a relationship for 10 years and just waiting and waiting and waiting. Eventually bring it up. But there's a, there's a great question that you can ask that gets you from here to here. And this is what I say. I say, you know, I think you know this about me. And I hope you've noticed this about me, but maybe, maybe it hasn't been clear. But I just, I just want you to know that, that the spiritual life is, is the most important thing to me. And, and I love hearing from others if they would agree where they are spiritually. Would, would you mind sharing with me what your spiritual background is and, and, and where you might be spiritually right now? Do you know in 13 years of ministry, I've never had one person, adult or student, ever say no to that? No, I would not like to share that with you. Man, we love to talk about ourselves. If you invite me to talk about myself, then I'll say, sure, I'll talk about myself. That's, that's the nature of who we are. We'll talk about ourselves. I've not had one person say, no, I don't, I'm not going to share that with you. And there's your bridge right there. Suddenly you're in a spiritual conversation. But listen, there, there's an individual component to this that where you live, work, and play, that you would be on mission, that you would seek to have those spiritual conversations and that you would seek to push people towards Jesus and share the gospel with them. But listen, there's a corporate aspect to this as well that we as a church body should be growing more and more in this culture of evangelism and mission together we're all gifted in different ways some of us can sit on a stage and talk others of us can stand up here and sing others of us can administrate others of us can help it doesn't matter where you've been gifted we've all been gifted in some way to help connect people to God so when people come through these doors man it should be it should be like a, a competition among us to see how we can serve them the best, to get them connected here at church to where they can connect to God in the best way that we know how. Now, I'm convinced of something, and this may be crazy, but I, I am honestly, I've been praying about this, and I'm like, God, am I wrong in saying this? And maybe I am, I don't know, but I just think this is the heart of God. I really dream of a day, I have this picture in my head where we've got a huge problem at Perimeter, like massive We've got a huge problem coming at Perimeter because we can't fit everybody in here that we're bringing with us. And they're not coming because the preacher is fantastic and they're not coming because our worship is fantastic. They're coming because you are engaging them because you're so compelled by the love of Jesus that you're propelled into their life so that they may know the love of Christ. And you're bringing them with you. 
And we got a 2200 seat auditorium and we got all these other venues and we go, it's not enough. God is doing such a work here that things are exploding. And we say, this is God. This is God at work through his people, doing his work, accomplishing his mission because we got a lot of people in this church who are compelled by the love of Jesus and are using their lives to be propelled into his mission. I think that's coming. I pray that God will do it. Not for the glory of perimeter, but for the glory of him and his kingdom. Wouldn't that be fun to be a part of? Don't you want to be a part of that? You can do it. We can do it together. And God can do it through us. There's an Express Your Faith seminar coming up. You heard it in the video. If you've never been to one of those, or even if you have been, I would encourage you to sign up for that. Randy does a a masterful job of explaining how to share the gospel with someone once you're in that place with them, to be able to share the gospel in a very concise way. Let me close with this. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The last verse in our passage, it just says this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's your homework. This verse is so powerful. It's the gospel in a verse. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, to take on our sin. He didn't become sin. He was our sin representative, to be in the place of sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Here's your homework. I want you to go home and I want you to use this passage every day this week as your time of reflection. And I want you to zone in particularly on verse 21. And I want you to sit in that verse. And I want you to let God do what he will through the power of his word in that verse to let the gospel truth of what he's done for us in Christ sink into you more and more. And watch what happens. You will become a person who is more compelled by this outrageous love of Jesus. And you will become a person that wants to be propelled all the more into his mission. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active. And that it does its work in us, shaping us into what you would have us be. Father, I thank you that you are doing a great work in this church. I thank you that you are using broken vessels to do your work, to expand your kingdom, to grow your church, to lead people in the places where we live, work, and play into a relationship with you. Father, I pray for all of us this morning that our heart's desire would be, God, I want to grow. I want to grow. I want to grow in in loving you more because of your love for me. I want to be compelled by the love of Jesus. But Father, I want to grow in being a part of your mission, counting it a privilege to be a participant in your redemption story as you redeem people unto yourself and all of creation to yourself. What a privilege, Father. May we count it as such, and may we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.